And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Here we go. It is Monday, ladies and gentlemen. We survived the weekend. Hopefully you all had a good Easter weekend, those of you who celebrate. We're back to it. Business as usual today. And business is good, I guess. Good enough that YouTube has decided to take a few of our subscribers away. It is first contact day for those of you Star Trek fans out there. You can make contact with us through a comment or the live chat if you're with us here live. Email address is live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. We're on all the social media and we do have a newsletter you can sign up for. And we're on all the podcast players that you would think of. iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, Amazon, Spotify, Apple, Double Twist, TuneIn, Stitcher, Listen Notes. So all of that is out there for you to use to make contact with us. And we are broadcasting live to Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Twitch, we're looking to get uh, up to 100 followers. We're rebuilding that channel. So if you want to follow us over there, we're going to start our watch parties here fairly soon. And I mentioned the YouTube shenanigans. Uh, there is... Um, there's a little bit of some weird something going on over there. I don't know exactly what's happening, but uh, people are losing subscribers. So we do have our Twitch channel there and we have Odyssey. So if you're interested in alternatives to YouTube, there is that. And it does kind of get a little tiring sometimes all right we mentioned uh we mentioned first contact day for those of you star trek fans paramount plus of course doing a big push for that today because they want you to watch star trek on paramount plus which is the streaming service from viacom cbs which is not doing all that well at least according to what the numbers look like. And, and it's one of those things that's way beyond my ken. So I'm going to bring in the experts, uh, Matt Stevens and Dan Danford back with us today. They were here a while back to talk about the GameStop, uh, hilarity, hijinks, shenanigans, whatever, whatever you want to call it there. Welcome gentlemen. Good to have you back. Good to Hello. be back. So, uh, Matt, you said something uh, right before the show. You said something about having an update on the GameStop. Why don't we do a, a real quick follow-up on that situation, sure. and then we'll dive uh, GameStop, into what we GameStop, last time we were on, we mentioned they should probably take this opportunity to issue more stock, and they are. So they are uh, issuing, a, I believe, a billion dollars worth of stock. That's going to save a lot of the shorts, and it's going to make GameStop a lot of money because – they are issuing it. It's currently 182 bucks. I assume they'll get it out the door at a $150 or more in reality. And I think in a normal market, they'd be lucky to sell, sell it at 30. So they're going to have a lot of money. So GameStop may not be, they may have a completely different line of business. I have no idea what their plans are, but they're going to have a lot of money. So that's, that's just crazy how all of that works shorts, out. Uh, maybe saved off this. So, uh, well, now does that does that lend any legitimacy to what we saw happen? As far as you know, it's a good it's a good strategy for shorting stocks like that because that one you know that one seemed pretty much like a wild wild west free for all. I don't, I don't really think so. <laughs> uh, I don't really think it changes their business plan any, except they'll have a lot more money that they can do something with. That, and maybe they have great management that has allowed allowed them to survive this. I don't really know, Dan. Do you have any, any opinion on that? I don't, but uh, having a lot of cash is a remedy for a lot of things. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> they're sitting; they'll be sitting on a pile of cash, and and uh, that'll at least allow them time, uh, which is important. So uh, we'll see. I I think actually, 
the raising cash is probably a consequence to the disaster rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. uh, that when the price was high, they just realized that that's an opportunity for them to, to issue new shares, bring new money in. And so they've taken advantage of that. But uh, we'll have to see how it plays out to know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Even before all of this started, Michael Burry, the fellow who became famous in the, the big short, we're shorting the mortgages. Um, he said their balance sheet was not really bad relative to their business model. And so that, that's why I got interested in it. I didn't, by the time this happened, unfortunately, I didn't own any game stuff. But um, so they apparently were kind of doing some, making some good decisions before in the first place. So. Well, and, and they'd had a change in ownership or change in management here not too long before that, uh, if I remember right. So maybe maybe somebody who's there is you know just savvy enough to sit there and go, okay, this is a thing. How do we make it work for us? Possibly. Yeah. It's been a very interesting thing. And as far as I know, it, I've never seen anything like it ever. So. Well, do you think maybe we might see that same kind of thing happen here with the Viacom <laughs> bit? Because I'm looking at this. And I see the, uh, let's see here, let me put this up here, the the stock price on Viacom CBS, right now currently sitting at 43.15 a share. And this comes after essentially what is what what seems to be a collapse of the stock. I mean, it peaked at $100 a share about a week and a half ago, and then just the bottom fell out. It seems to have stabilized a little bit, but they've lost half their value. And I'm looking at this article from the from the Los Angeles Times, and it seems like the trigger for all of this was a thirty billion dollar. Uh, let's see, no, that it raced it raced about thirty billion dollars in value, but they did a three billion dollar stock offering, and that seems to have been the trigger for this. Does that does that track with how you guys are reading it? Because I'm a newbie at all of this. This is not, not this is really. not my territory at all. I think Dan and I are probably kind of up to speed on what happened. Dan, I think it originated with the family office. And uh, Dan, would you want to, you probably have a better yeah. expl explanation of what a family office is than I do. So um, I, when I talk about family offices, I go back to um, one family office that many of us are familiar with. And that kind of gives uh, an idea of how it works. And that's the Kennedy family office, which was in Chicago. And, uh, you know, when Joe Kennedy uh, was obviously one of the most wealthy and influential men in the United States at one point in time, and he had nine kids and those nine kids had 65 grandkids. And there was a, there was a time when they had an office in Chicago that took care of all the financial affairs for all of them. They had their own team of lawyers, tax people, insurance people um, who, who basically, you know, filed the taxes, did the investing, did uh, estate planning, did everything for this group of people. And the family office probably still exists and we're probably down to the third or fourth or fifth generation from some of those people. Well, that's kind of a model. There are a, a number of wealthy families in the United States that essentially operate a one office operation just to take care of multiple uh, generations of a wealthy family. Now, in this particular one, this is a guy named Bill Huang, H-W-A-N-G. Uh, he became famous uh, some years back as a hedge fund operator. He was a disciple of a guy named Julian Robertson who had a big international hedge fund. And he actually opened a hedge fund of his own called Tiger Asia that got in trouble a few years ago. And they basically closed out Tiger Asia. He paid some $41 million in civil fines or civil um, settlements to people who had been investors in that. And then this was his family office. And at this time, this, this family office for the Huang family did not involve outside investors. They were managing about five or $10 billion just for Bill Huang and his family. And that is the kind of um, uh, diving board that launched this entire Viacom thing. 
So how, how did I'm I'm looking at this and and you see this precipitous drop right here right. from March right. 22nd at $100.34 a share right. down now to the the lowest value it looks like was 45. How did how does one how does the the family office involvement what does that do with this because that this came right after that that stock option. So, yeah, how, so how are those two connected? So I, I think you have to understand, first of all, that uh, when it comes to long-term investing, people buy a stock because they share in the revenue and the opportunity of a particular company. Mm -hmm. So most of the people who are investing in Viacom CBS were doing it because they liked the business prospects of this company and felt like over a long period of time they would be well rewarded for owning those stocks. The Huang family kind of stepped outside of that model and uh, started uh, buying or acquiring the stock in sort of an invisible way. And the only way I can explain it is to say that um, they were using derivatives of Viacom CBS rather than actually buying the shares. It's a complicated issue. I'm not going to take you there, but <laughs> basically what they were doing was they were, they were, so if I am investing and I have my billions of dollars and I buy uh, 5% of any company, whether it's Microsoft or whether it's Hewlett Packard or whether it's Boeing, I have to report to the Securities and Exchange Commission that I bought 5% of that company. That's, that's a disclosure rule. Right. But if I, if I do it through derivatives where I never buy the shares of Microsoft or Boeing or something else, I don't have to make that report. So guys like Bill Huang or, 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 or others, they don't necessarily want other people to know what they're investing in or how they're doing things. So that secrecy appeals to them because if other people knew, they might start jumping on the same bandwagon. They might do what they could to, to make it fail or whatever. So basically what he did was something that are called total return swaps. And they basically go to a bank and they enter into a contract with this bank that says, I want to, control $5 billion of Viacom stock. And I'm just going to pay you a fee and you go buy the $5 billion of Viacom stock. And at the end of a year, you know, whatever the expiration is of the contract, I either get the profits from the Viacom stock or I pay you the losses on the Viacom stock. That's how it works. That's okay. what's called a total return swap. And that's legal. It's legal, perfectly legal. There's no reason why you can't do it or shouldn't do it. The, the, the problem here is that he did it multiple times. So he had this arrangement with Goldman Sachs and he had this arrangement with Credit Suisse and he had this arrangement very similar. So even though he only had five or $10 billion, the way I understand it, um, it was magnified through these things to as much as 75 or $100 billion of Viacom stock. Mm. Now, so interestingly, what you asked me to start this question is <laughs> how do we explain what happened? Well, part of what explained what happened is that the, the price up on the stock going up to $100 a share, right. part of that was these contracts. You know, they were competing with each other for the shares of the stock and it drove the price up to this level, okay, to a hundred dollars a share or whatever. So his his individual his various different contracts that he had in various different places, <laughs> so he was competing with himself essentially. The banks were competing against themselves and they were driving up the price of the stock. That is exactly right. Mm. Now, along comes on March twenty second, the company this goes back to what Matt said the other day. The company's sitting there scratching their head and they're saying, hey, wait a second. If our shares are $100 a share, maybe we ought to go ahead and issue some new shares at that price. So that would allow us to buy additional properties. So they announced this thing where they're going to raise $3 billion to buy additional uh, content, basically. So mm -hmm. it boils down to they're going to get more TV series, more streaming movies, all that kind of stuff. Everybody else who owns Viacom didn't think that was such a good idea, and the price started dropping, okay? 
Now, Bill Huang probably would have been okay, except the magnification of these contracts. All of a sudden, the price starts dropping and they get worried about his capital to be able to pay them for the losses when it goes bad. That's what happened. I mean, on the way down, as the price dropped, you have Goldman Sachs and you have, you know, various others coming in and saying, hey, buddy, you you just you're you're already on the hook for a billion dollars in losses. We want to see the money. Yeah. And so they started liquidating the shares. The shares spiraled downward down to $40 a share or whatever, $45 a share today. Um, that's what happens with leverage. You know, when you're borrowing the money to invest, it's great when things go up. It's horrid when things go down. And that's exactly what happened here. So what would be the motivation behind this kind of, of activity on, across multiple contracts? I mean, I can, I can see do one or two, but, the, but it sounds like this guy's making a run for, what, control of Viacom? Is he, is he trying to buy enough shares that he can have some influence there or what? He could do it in secret and also instead of the usual two or three to one leverage, he probably had 10 or 15. One yeah, so all it does is magnify your returns. Okay. It magnifies returns on the upside. So, and this guy's playing with billions of dollars. So, you know, instead of 10% a year, he might be able to leverage it and make 40, 50, 60% a year. And that's what he wants to do. But the contracts turned against him. And, and leverage is magnified on the way back down, too. Yeah. Um, right. And so, I, I've not heard any suggestion yet that what he has done is illegal, but I think there'll be people investigating it. And if it turns out that there are some things that shouldn't have been done, he's going to be on the hook big time for it because this is a, a huge blow up in the market. Right. Um, Eastland in the chat says insiders make money. The regular person cannot buy or sell stocks or options uh, like this. They have a fair chance to lose or earn, but it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a weighted, uh, scenario here where you have to have a good amount of money to start with in order to even play in this game. Well, in that context, yeah, cause I think they were creating private contracts for him basically. Yeah. If you and I walked in with a million dollars and said, I want you to, to you to do this deal, go buy stock and I'll pay the difference. I don't think they pay. I don't think they'd talk to you. If you said I have a billion dollars, I want to do that. Yeah. Then they they cut off a hundred that, and they would probably do it. So, but you can go, of course, of course, go out and buy the stock, and if you know what's going on, you could profit. Right. Uh, is, is there but, is there any suggestion here that this uh, Huang family outfit is, is got any connection at all with the Redstones? Because I mean, this is not the first controversy around. CBS and Viacom. I mean, the merger itself, the family drama, all of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, the accusations against Les Moonves and his departure, all of this stuff. Plus, on the production side of things, uh, there are a lot of people who are looking at things like Star Trek and, and the Twilight Zone and the various different current modern incarnations of these franchises. And they're kind of giving it a little bit of side eye saying, this is really not all that great. So, now you have now you have this juxtaposition, as it were, of various different, you know, you've got this perfect storm where the stock craters, what does that do to their operating capital to buy? Because, Dan, you mentioned, you know, that they're going to do this stock option in order to have more uh, more resources to pay for more productions. You know, we've got this new streaming service. They just relaunched Paramount Plus because CBS All Access didn't have the prestige or whatever reason, it really kind of feels like they're, are they grasping at straws and, and maybe hope for the best or, or does it feel like maybe there's a strategy here for them? Well, you know, from an operating standpoint, all the shenanigans with the stock price probably don't matter very much um, except for the infusion of another $3 billion to spend on, on, streaming and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, it, it would be hard for me to uh, believe that they had direct contacts between the, the family and the Huangs. 
if I was guessing based on Bill Huang's um, history, his 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 history with Tiger Global and Tiger Asia, my guess is he probably convinced these banks and stuff that that he was going to make a huge amount of money on these trades because of the opportunities that were available in say China or in mm-hmm. Asia, basically that you know this book of content is going to be hugely valuable. Um, in, in markets that haven't had it in the past. Now that may or may not be right, but it was probably the story he was telling to get Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse and all these other guys to ante up these loans and stuff. Um, I think most of that is probably um, auxiliary to the actual operation of a business on a daily basis. I just think he, he, he found an opportunity where he felt like he could roll the dice and make you know, tens of billions of dollars for being right. He didn't expect to be wrong. Um, and that's true of a lot of these, especially these hedge fund operators. Yeah. So what happens next here? Is that, does the, the bottom falling out of this mean that they don't have the operating capital that they need in order to move forward with uh, whatever plans that they want to do next? Or is this, are, I mean, are they done? Or is this just a minor setback? They didn't get the stock offering out the door yet. So they won't. So have they that. didn't get $85 a share for their own, for the is new stock. Yeah. 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 Um, so they may not even do it. I, I don't know what their plans are. Can they do that? Can they just say, you know, we, can they pull that back and decide oh, not sure. to once it's yeah. been announced? So what does that do from a, from a PR standpoint, does that is that more egg on their face then if they don't go through with it? I, I, I think, yeah, I, I was going to say, I think it reflects more on Bill Huang than it does on Viacom, C, CBS. Uh, I, don't, I don't think any of it's a big, strong reflection on how they've been operating or what they're trying to do. I think it's more the case of somebody coming in and thinking they saw some opportunity and, and the price got driven up based on his own buying, actually. Yeah. And it's probably settled now down to a price that is closer to the actual economic value of the stock. And that, that's just my guess. I'm not studying their books, so I'm, I can't tell you that. But. Sure. It's roughly back to where the price was back in October, which is probably about where the buying seems to have started. So that 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 precipitous drop then would be more of a correction at this point then. Given yeah, forest you know, liquidations, and you know you're when you have to liquidate a large amount, then you have to liquidate more because you're driving your own price down, creating right. more margin holes. Is and this uh, is this something that Viacom can use to their advantage? Is there is there some way that they can spin this as a positive? Oh, I, I was going to say people are so crafty. I, I I don't know what it would be, but they if, if 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 a corporation has an opportunity to spend something, they will. Yeah. Well, now you said that right now it doesn't look like anything illegal was done. How do you how do you find the earmarks of insider trading? Eastland in the chat is mentioning Martha Stewart, and this is what she went to jail yeah. for. Is is there? A hint here, is there any kind of an indicator that would lead someone to be suspicious of what happened? I don't think the outright purchases are a problem, really. Uh, If you know that your company is acquiring shares and they don't have any operational insights into the company, I don't think you would really call that insider trading. Okay. Unless you had somebody inside at Viacom, what do you think? I don't. Yeah, I think it's more uh, falls under the category of a market maneuver. It is like selling a stock short or, you know, anytime you use derivatives and 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 borrow the money to trade the derivatives. um, I'd call it closer to speculation or gambling than I would investing. Right. Um, In this case, he was doing it with a very large company and a lot, a lot of money, and it blew up on him. Um, That's not saying nothing illegal took place, but it doesn't have it. It doesn't look like a Martha Stewart thing where, you know, 
she knew somebody who knew somebody who knew something that they weren't supposed to know. Yeah. So um, where does where does Viacom go from here? Do you think? Well, if you, if you were advising them on this situation, what would you tell them to do next? I don't know that it will change their operations at all. They'll probably just uh, have to put off any stock offerings in the meantime. Uh, I don't really think any bad press is going to come from it unless they were involved in some way. As far as the insider trading goes, there could very possibly be somebody at like Credit Suisse that sees there's, oh, there's a big buyer coming in that uh, in the other department, let's go buy some stock and yeah. be involved in it. That borders on that is possible and that probably did happen or that may have happened. Um, but it would be relatively small potatoes compared yeah. to these billions. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that, that, that's what I think, too. Um, but I, people will investigate it, so we'll find out. We'll find out something. There, I yeah. do agree with the notion that, you know, these some of these players get access to stuff that the rest of us don't. Yeah. I mean, Matt's exactly right. If Even if we had a brilliant idea and wanted to borrow $100 billion to trade on it, those doors are not open to us. Um, you can you can buy derivatives and stuff if you want to, and you could probably even borrow to buy derivatives, just not on this scale. I mean, this scale is just uh, unbelievable. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you guys uh, say is that it doesn't look like this is something that's on – Viacom's end as far as culpability or responsibility or anything like that, because there are a number of YouTubers out there yes, who are wildly speculating and they've got people telling them on the inside that, that now you have this as a consequence of some of the decisions they've been making in their programming. But I want to, I want to make this, this kind of make it clear here from what you guys have looked at it. It doesn't seem like this is a result of CBS programming decisions, Paramount decisions for productions, or anything like that. The, 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 the two are not related? I can't say they absolutely aren't related, but I can tell you that I've spent quite a bit of time in the last week or 10 days reading the articles about what happened and trying to understand what happened. And those those discussions have not been there. Okay. Most of the discussions have been about stock market manipulations. Right. Because that that's not a that's not an operating thing. Yeah, because there were a lot of there were there were quite a few people yeah. that were making hay over this with, you know, this this is because of what they've done to Star Trek. And I'm like, it that doesn't really quite track with what I've been seeing, but uh, but yeah, again, that goes back to, you know, who's who's ultimately responsible for all of this, because right. if this is somebody on the inside getting wanting to do this because of reasons, whatever, I don't understand how how anybody if if somebody on the inside wanted this to happen, what would be the benefit? I mean, ultimately, what would be the outcome that they would be looking for to try to set something up like this on purpose? Well, I don't think they would want to set up the failure. I could see a lot of people that would want it to go up. I mean, everybody that works at Viacom probably owns their stock. Right. So there'd be a lot of people that would want it to go up. But I, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine a conspiracy that would involve, you know, six or eight different global banks at, you know, five or $10 billion a piece. That, that, it, it just, that just doesn't ring true to me. Right. I, you know, there are always going to be people who take advantage of things they see around them. But to be able to, I mean, even if, even if you put, even if you whispered this idea in Bill Huang's ear, his ability to go borrow this kind of money, uh, that, that's on him. You couldn't have predicted that. Right. I just don't see that happening. So no no nefarious plans and schemes here that you can tell because I mean the timing of it you know we get all the stock yeah. price up to a hundred let's let's offer this this option you know are we manipulating the market so we can throw the option out there or is you know because you know it's a chicken and egg thing I guess right is yeah. you know we well, they, we want I, more money I do to work think with. that the idea to issue new shares probably came around because the price was so high. Yeah. I mean, I think that was an opportunistic move. 
but I don't think somebody planted the idea two years ago so it could happen. Okay. But, All right. Well, what what do you think? The stock has settled. Then we're kind of where we're going to be now at forty five ish a share for a while. Or are we done with all of the volatility? Do you think? Uh, I don't really. Let's see. I don't really see. They don't really have any earnings now, do they? So <laughs> uh, there's always that earnings problem. Yeah. <laughs> Does this hurt their ability to borrow? It's kind of in the pretty much where it's been for about five years. I've sort of been in this range. Okay. Or it's not out of the chart doesn't look out of whack. A year ago, it got as low as I think it did become fifteen bucks. Yeah. So, so does this affect their? Uh, I mean, not necessarily their operating capital, but their ability to borrow anything if they want to. If they want to sit there and say for lack of a better word, get a mortgage on what they already have in order to do more. And that's a, that's a terrible analogy. I know, but does this, this, this precipitous drop back to where they were, give them a hit on their credit? Is, is this, is this going to hurt them in that sense? Or we're just back to where we were. Things are back to normal. They might be able to issue stock at this price, possibly. Uh, as far as borrowing, I don't really know their, what their credit rating would be, but it's probably not. I don't think this ride and the stock would have necessarily impacted it. Sorry. All right. Well, it is definitely an interesting set of set of circumstances. Like, wait a minute. Oh, yeah. What what exactly happened? Because I I still every now and again, you know, when I start to look at this stuff, I I I know. I know what I don't know, and I sit there and I think I don't know enough about this to really know what's going on to see if this is a if this is a good thing or a bad thing because you know we had the GameStop situation, and now we've got this one, and and it just seems like the the makeups coming off the pig, as it were, where you start to see a little bit more on how the sausage is made and it's an exposing, exposing some of this for what it really is where, you know, your regular Joe six pack can't really play in this, in this ballpark. But I think it's, it's worth noting that um, in the last year or maybe two years, um, the idea of speculating in the market, almost like casino like behavior Mm-hmm. has taken on kind of a, a, a new um, shine, I guess is what I would say. And so like the people who are doing the day trading and things like that, that's not new. Yeah. Uh, but most people who day trade lose money ultimately. I mean, eventually. But in the last year or so, as people weren't able to work and stuff, they got started again. And, and it, it, it's more it's more akin to playing a video game or playing video poker or something than it is people investing because of the long-term potential returns of these companies. And that's an excess that comes around every once in a while. It's not anything new to the market, but I would say it's been higher in the last few years than it had in the time before. I think that will get wrung out of the market. I mean, there's an argument out there that says, you know, a lot of that comes because of the stimulus checks and things. If you give people a check for $5,000 that they didn't have before, some of them are going to spend it foolishly and some of it are spending it, you know, in in the markets and things, but they're not hoping for that steady 8% annual return on their retirement account. These are people who are trying to double or triple their money. Right which is an unlikely consequence in the stock market most of the time. Well, and, and Eastland makes a good point. And, and this is a, this is a question as far as cause and effect. When you look at what Huang did, uh, it says this it says your regular stock buyer can be sunk by the big plays, the big guys, it, and not, not just Huang and the consequences for him. No. What's the, what's the impact to other stockholders? You know, just your, your, whether it's, employees that own stock in the company or, or regular people off the street, civilians like us who own stock in these companies. What does that, what does that do for 
confidence in the company. Yeah, confidence would be confidence in purchasing the stock would be a problem. That that could definitely be hurt. And there would would have been some people that bought just because it was moving up and they wanted to be on board, and some of them would be hurt. Right. But uh, yeah, it's definitely definitely a manipulation, and uh, it's not a good thing. Some of the banks that were involved, they I think that they figure the banks are currently out about ten billion dollars in losses that they're not going to recoup, or they don't proceed recouping anytime soon. So yeah. hopefully they'll be more careful in the future. Now, will those banks uh, experience any scrutiny on on their end because they were part of this? I mean, you would think, well. All of this is going on. Somebody would sniff a, a, a clue here and say, hold on, let's let's see, because all of this is happening and all of these banks are doing it. Somebody has to be talking to somebody. Um, they probably won't have any capital issues. They're all very large banks, but yeah. it's. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, most likely they I don't think they're currently accused of doing anything illegal. Uh, interesting, J.P. Morgan did not do any of these they were approached and decided not to i don't really know why they don't i don't think they even know why but they were lucky that that would be interesting to see what the reasoning was behind that decision to to not participate all right well speaking of speculation uh that that brings us to our next topic we're going to talk about nfts we're going to take a real quick break when we get back we're going to talk about this new this new wild speculation on something called nfts and i'm going to do my best to try to keep up so stick around we will be right back you know the film is going to end it's going to end badly for all of these people and you don't care horribly disgusting revolting did that just happen there is no kill like overkill i was so scared that I wanted to take my lower lip and pull it out and pull it over my head so I could cover my eyes. Foreign Bodies, Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Thanks for watching Sci-Fi For Me TV. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. You're watching Sci-Fi For Me TV, delivering the multiverse since 2009. All right, back here on Sci-Fi for Me TV, live from the bunker with Dan Danford, who's the CEO of the Family Investment Center, right? Did I get that right? You got it exactly right. All right. And Matt Stevens, who is an independent advisor on investments and such. So let's talk a little bit now about NFTs, because this has become a big thing in the comics industry in the last few weeks. Um, people talking about... Uh, the value of it, uh, the desirability of it, the ethics of it. And I'm still trying to figure out what exactly this thing is because it's essentially, you're taking what's essentially a cryptocurrency token and you're attaching it to a digital file, I guess maybe as some kind of a, a, a certificate of authenticity, I guess is the closest thing that we've come to, to an analogy. But for those who are not quite up to speed on this. What is exactly an NFT? Uh, well, it is a uh, a digital signature that declares something an original, or not necessarily an original, but it assigns authenticity to it. I mean, the most bizarre one I heard of was Jack Dorsey's original Twitter tweet. I believe it it's one line and it says i'm setting this thing up here it's a tweet i mean there's nothing written i suppose somebody could have printed it out yeah somebody assigned a digital nft to it and it sold for a large amount of money i believe it was over a million yeah it's almost three million almost actually, three million. 2.9 what are they buying that's my question. What what are they buying? Because I can take I can take a screenshot of that tweet. Yes. Or I you know I'm looking at any kind of digital file, and that's that's a lot where this comes from. The comic side of things is the digital art, because a lot of artists now are not putting pen to paper. It's all digital artwork, so there's no original art to sell like they've had in the past. 
where, you know, you can take page two of Daredevil and sell it. You know, the Heritage Auctions just sold a bunch of stuff. And page two of Daredevil brought in something like $288,000. But that's an actual physical thing. It's not, I mean, it's, it's tangible. It's, you, you have a transaction, you pay money, and you get this thing in your hand in return. Getting it in your hand, that's the big deal. And I don't know why these things are. I mean, if one thing, if it's a digital thing, like a digital work of art that supposedly no one else could display without your permission, right? that might be one thing. But I don't have, I, well, I'm hard pressed to imagine that these are going to be around for a while. <laughs> but I, yeah. I think I said that with Bitcoin, so. <laughs> well, and I'm still trying to figure out Bitcoin because, you know, the dollar, granted, now the dollar really has no basis in value because we're not on the gold standard anymore. But at one point, you had gold and you had the dollar that was based on the gold. The value was was intrinsically connected to a, a, a commodity. Whereas now we assign value to the dollar because we say it's got value. And so it's, it's more a, a matter of faith and belief than it is anything else. And it seems to me that these NFTs and these cryptocurrencies and that kind of thing are working off of the same principle where you have this idea of a thing that you're investing in and, and you hope that it has value. Somebody tells you it has value. You believe it has value, but does it really? If other people agree it has value, then it does. Yeah, if, if you could so sell it like for something. Yeah, if you can sell it for something, it has value. The question is, I saw, I thought an excellent uh, discussion the other day. And he, this person was talking about it and said, you know, consider the art world. There are tens of thousands of pieces of art that are sold every year. Just a tiny proportion of them really has value. You know, the, the Rembrandts, the Van Goghs, the Da Vinci's maybe. Most of the rest of it um, is very arbitrary. And most people who buy the art, even original art, aren't able to sell it later for what they have in it. Okay. There probably is a place for non-fungible token assets, but it's probably much smaller than people are envisioning today. And uh, I'm like, you know, one, another example was LeBron James, who who sold an in uh, a non-fungible token of him doing a slam dunk. OK, yeah. now the person who bought that token, they own that video clip. OK, and they own the original one. They bought it from LeBron James. Okay, that's pretty. I mean, I can understand the status, perhaps, of that. But there are no restrictions on how you use it. I mean, anybody else can watch that clip. They can post it on their Facebook page, everything else. The only thing this person has is proven ownership of right. the clip. They don't have exclusive right for, I mean, so it's hard to imagine how it has any tangible uh, value going forward. Well, what about, um, you talk about the, the, the rights issue and, and some right. of the stuff we talked about, the, the, the comics uh, industry doing this. There right. are some that are sitting there making original comic books and, and comic book art specifically for an NFT. And now the question then becomes, well, if you, if I make, if I make a comic book and I put a dig, I, I do a, a digital uh, NFT token thing to it. Can the person buying that, do they then own the copyright? What kind of, what kind of rights do they have? Do you have a way when you set up the token are you set? Do you have those parameters that you can assign to it, or is it just the question of ownership, just as a blanket thing? Because that that to me seems like we're getting into some real murky territory as far as who can do what <laughs> with it. I think you I think you can uh, maybe assign the copyrights, but I don't think that it's usually done. I mean, yeah. I think the person who created it usually retains the copyrights. What you're buying is the original data on that file. But I think that you don't, it doesn't necessarily include the copyright when you buy it. Yeah. So that would mean that the person who created it could do, you know, derivative works, could recreate it, sell it again. Uh, it's very, very unusual. It just makes no sense to me that anybody would want to do this. 
Jason, you're probably familiar with this last week, the first film ever sold as NFT was sold out of Kansas City, Lotawana. Yeah. And I don't really know what the ramifications of that. I, I don't know. Well, and uh, we could probably talk to the fellow and find out. Well, and this this just broke today. This is Variety. The the headline: Gary uh, Guy O'Siri, Ashton Kusher, Mark Cuban, and Snoop Dogg team for a Shark Tank like NFTs. The pitch. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm looking at this. An investment of one million dollars for a pitch competition set to launch on April 21st. NFTs The Pitch will feature a judging panel that includes such crypto and NFT heavyweights as Whale Shark, collector and founder of Whales, MetaCoven, founder of MetaPurse, mu- musician three. Li- I mean, I've never even heard of any of these people. And they're going off of a Shark Tank model, and it's they're looking for things in the NFT space. And I'm thinking, what is, what is an NFT space? This is This is so ethereal to me. So one of the things that, that I thought was creative and interesting was the idea of, uh, I guess they were called crypto kitties. I don't know, yeah. I don't know if you followed this, but they basically created like 10 or 15 or 20 uh, original cats that yeah. were all done digitally. Okay. And they all had different personalities and different looks and that kind of thing. And people owned those originals. Now, they, the way I understand it, now I'm not an expert on this. I'm just trying to understand it as best I can. But the cats can mate and create offspring. And the oh. offspring then can contain the genetics from the two parents. And so, and then those are sold as well. And now there's a, there's a group out there. And, and I, I mean, some of these were selling for, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a piece, which I don't get. But I at least understand the novelty behind the game, you know, that because some of the, the offspring, they have they have what they call uh, fancy cats and shiny cats. And some of them are worth more than others. And I, I mean, I, I can at least understand kind of the, the, the idea behind it, that each piece is completely different from any other. Sure. How that plays into Mark Cuban and those guys, I have no idea. Well, and and I'm struck here because, you know, like uh, Eastland says in the chat, I just breathed out air. Uh, anyone <laughs> can buy it and own it. Legal person set up a totally non-practical ownership for, uh, for NFT. By the way, hello, Stephanie. Welcome to the chat. Um, did you guys ever think in your careers that we would be sitting grown, grown adults talking about buying electronic cats? that have absolutely no tangible assets no the the entire value of this is is this it just feels like a wish and a prayer on this kind of thing i i just don't understand how anybody can be interested in this especially at at fifty thousand dollars per i mean i could see something where somebody pays three dollars a piece but I can't envision why somebody would, but I can't envision why somebody paid $3 million for Jack Dorsey's first tweet. Yeah. I mean, well, and you know, I've seen some, I've seen some comparisons to multi-level marketing at at times. I mean, but even then with multi-level marketing, in most cases you have product, right? You know, whether it's vitamins or food supplements or clothes or soap or whatever, it's, you know, you have something, you know, there's a transact, there's an actual transaction for something that you can hold in your hand and you can say, okay, this is what I bought for my money. And now I can turn around and I can sell it for more money. Well, and you're creating new buyers. I mean, how are you creating new buyers for NFTs? Who, who are you, who's going, you're going to tell your Jack Dorsey tweet to? I mean, it, to me, it's the perfect greater fool theory. And then what do you do with it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. I, I guess you put on your resume, I own Jack Dorsey's first tweet. I don't know what, yeah, I, I mean, it, I mean it's to not me, it almost you seems like it. A, a kind of a status thing among rich people, but we'll see. It's just, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Robert in the chat says, uh, uh, somebody sold a banana. Oh yeah. The banana duct tape to the board sold for over a hundred thousand dollars. 
And, but see, but again, though, that's a that's an actual thing. You know, it's a, as a, whatever whatever you want to say, whether it's art or not. Somebody actually took real duct tape and a real banana, and they really taped it up in a space, and you see it, and you could touch it. And somebody wants to buy that and say it's art. Okay, fine. I I I now have that, but you're not going to put an NFT on a Monet. Right. Because well, you could, you I could, mean, but, but how do you own a Monet without actually having it in your possession? This is, this yeah, I have the first NFT on it. Maybe that <laughs> would be of some value at some point. I, the, the, I, I don't know. It shouldn't. But. I'm having such a hard time wrapping my head around this. The interesting thing about it though, is that the underlying, um, 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 technology behind it is blockchain right and blockchain has commercial value and i, I think people are playing with it here but the notion of of, of a, a permanent ledger that can't be altered that records everything that happens with a particular product or service or transportation or anything that does have value going forward and you see a lot of commercial applications it, it may be that you know, kind of like when the internet first came around, people weren't sure what to do with it and they kind of played with things and we got some unusual applications. That may be what we're seeing here is, is the, um, the sorting out of the technology, kind of figuring out, you know, what are the real uses? Right. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's very, you know, it's thin air to me, and I don't understand that. But I do understand why blockchain has some appeal. See, I'm I'm having a tough time with blockchain as well. I kind of I kind of think that I understand the idea of it, but it's still kind of one of those things where you know, old dog, new tricks type of thing. And I and I I I'm looking sideways at it, still trying to figure this part out because I'm not completely up to speed on how blockchain works. And, 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 you know, when you look at stuff like cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and that kind of thing, it's still, it still to me seems like something completely made up in a science fiction universe rather than something real, because there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing backing it up. There's no, there's no inherent so, value. On blockchain, though, one of the things that you can do are what, what are called smart contracts. Let me just give you a real simple example of this. Okay. The, I, could, I could introduce onto a blockchain a, basically a contract that says, hey, I'm a businessman. Um, I need to buy a new piece of equipment, and that new piece of equipment is going to cost me $200,000. But if I get it, then I can generate a, a revenue stream from that new piece of equipment going forward. Here's my credit rating. Here's where you can get my company. Here's everything. What I'm looking for is somebody who will loan me two hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Now, somebody else going into quick uh, going onto the blockchain sees that smart contract and says, "You know what? I'd be willing to loan you that money for four and a half percent." Somebody else sees it and says, "You know, I'd loan it to you for four and a quarter percent." What, what you've actually done is you've, you've bypassed the banker. You took okay. the middleman out of the picture because if the two people can meet on blockchain and have it entirely documented, and this is, this is documentation that everybody can look at. It's not just between those two. It's that anybody else that has access to the blockchain can see exactly what happened, what, what the terms were, what that was. Yeah then I borrow money from this person. Maybe they're in Vietnam. It doesn't matter. Money's money. It, you take that one little transaction and you multiply it by all the people that are out there that are borrowing money on a daily basis, it can grow into something very, very large. And there are companies that are looking at this in great detail, trying to figure out how to make it work. And it has, it really does have application. No. It may not be there yet, but someday it could be, and it could be a huge thing. Dan, why would we need the blockchain for that? Because the bulletin board do that? Yeah. The, the, the magic of blockchain is that it creates an irrevocable record. 
can't be altered in the future. And there are multiple copies of it on different computers around the world. So it is truly transparent. Anybody who wants to look at it can look at it. Yeah. And so it is, it's very much like a, a, a bulletin board or something, except that the record that it creates is permanent and transparent and open to anybody who wants to look. And um, I, I've got a friend that's in the transportation business and in one of the big companies. And what they're looking at is manifests on, on, on freight moving around. And so you'd be able to show, I put this freight on a boat or a truck and it went here and here and here, and it records every place it went and every transaction. They look at it as a way of, in this particular case, there are, they do business in multiple com- countries all around the world. And historically in some of those places, there's graft and corruption. There are bribes paid and things yeah. like that. Doing it all on blockchain that's open for everybody to see sort of eliminates some of that. And so they're looking at it as an opportunity to remove a lot of that stuff that's been there historically. I don't know whether they'll get it done, but it is kind of interesting. The idea that this block of data is open for anybody who wants to look. Right. Interesting. Well, and, and Christopher made a suggestion here that we ought to take the very first article from, from sci-fi for me.com and, and put an NFT on it and sell it. I <laughs> wish I could. I don't have it no. anymore because we've gone through so many different iterations and, and hard drive crashes that, uh, that that one's gone. So lost opportunity for us, but it just, but see the thing, Dan, when you're talking about how that, that particular use of blockchain, you're still tracking physical inventory. There's right. still there's still a tangible yeah. element well, to but, this. I mean, NFTs yeah. kind of use that same technology, but you're still you're still dealing in the no, the, the you're the exactly world. right. But the diff what what's what's key to the the NFTs is the ownership record right. is permanent. So whether it's that I mean, they talk about this maybe even for titles on cars and real estate and things like that. It's inviolate. Is that if you're the guy who owns Jack Dorsey's tweet, mm-hmm. until you sell it to somebody else, there is no disputing that you bought it and you own it. Because anybody can look at that record. That's what's interesting about it. It's not the tweet itself. It's that the ownership is, is uncontestable. Right. But isn't that something that can be hacked? I, because of the the way I understand it, I'm not brilliant. I mean, I just don't get all this stuff. Because of the multi copies of the blockchain, mm-hmm. it can't be it can't be hacked because it's in different people's hands. Okay. Now Robert's asking a, a question in the chat. Um, something something about blockchain because you're talking about the indelible trail of ownership, the the the, the tracking of that. Um, but he's saying it seems like somebody people are using it in the deep web for drug deals, um, uh, assassination contracts and, and that sort of thing. Is this it? How secure is it? I mean, you're saying that anybody who has access to that particular blockchain can see all this record. How what if what if I want this to be a private thing? I don't want a record. I don't want anybody to just be able to look at it. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, it, it's sort of like the dark web, though. I yeah. mean, we know it exists. I mean, it, the web is a remarkably good thing for most people, but there is an element that's found a way to use it for all kinds of shady stuff. I can't say that that won't happen with some of the blockchain. But I, I think originally that was, uh, I think originally that was thrown around as a method of payment mm-hmm. to get those things done more than more than anything else so crazy times we live in not necessarily to all get the contract no all right well uh we will have to do this again the next time something blows up uh you know and i'm sure that it will happen again so how uh how would people find you guys on the web if you want to be found Uh, I'm kind of have to be anonymous because I can't be construed as <laughs> advertising, sure. but uh, I am out there. Some you can find me on Facebook, Matthew Stevens. So, and Dan Family Investment yeah. Center, you're you're up Dan in. Danford, Dan Danford at Family Investment Center. Uh, got a web presence. Uh, you can find me or uh, send me a, 
a note or something. I'm glad to talk to anybody who uh, wants. Okay. And I guess uh, at the top of the hour, we probably should have said, this is just a general discussion. Nobody yeah. should take this as, as uh, financial advice or investment advice. We're just, we're just, you know, talking and, and, and talking amongst ourselves here. So um, I, I, I'm going to have to come up with a with a financial episode disclaimer to go at the beginning of the show, so just to make sure. All right, it's always, gentlemen. It's always fun to talk about the most unusual stuff, right? It is. It is. And we do get some unusual stuff here. We'll have you back for <laughs> the next Economics episode. rules the world. That's right. Absolutely. All right. And with that, we will head out. Thanks very much, uh, Dan Danford, Matt Stevens, and all of you in the chat, thanks very much for being here as well. If you have not subscribed, or if you have subscribed, make sure you're still subscribed because YouTube is doing their thing again. Uh, have your notifications turned on. Tonight on uh, the H2O podcast, we will be talking about bad films that we like. Bad films we love. They are guilty pleasures. So there is that tonight. And then coming up a little bit later on in the week, uh, we'll have a new episode of Tartar Sauce with the Doctor Who discussion. And, of course, we'll be back here tomorrow with more Live from the Bunker on Sci-Fi for You TV. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Give us a like on your way out. Feel free to share this or any other videos, and we will be back with more tomorrow. Thanks for watching. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.